You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm super excited to talk to Jenny Lee on becoming operationally savvy. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Superb. So, Jenny, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, how you got to Akamai, and uh, a little bit about your journey. Great. Yeah. So, today I am the uh, VP of Marketing Operations and Customer Experience at Akamai. I've been at Akamai for 20 years, which is unheard of in the technology world. So, I'm sure. We can talk a little bit about that and, and how that happened. But um, I, in the 20 years that I've been at Akamai, um, I've had a number of different roles. I started in the services and support world and then found, kind of stumbled my way into operations. And I've done a number of different operations role at the company um, across different departments today, running marketing operations um, and um, also have the customer experience team, which is our customer listening programs. As part of that, I started my career um, with a technology background. I have a um, couple of computer science degrees, and and I worked in some IT help desk roles early in my career. And I honestly expected to be a software developer, but somehow stumbled into the customer facing roles first, and then operation roles second. And um, it's been a really fun ride working for a company for such a long period and seeing it evolve, but also to learn more about the operations world, which I think we're going to spend some time talking about today. Well, you and me both started with a computer science degree, although since I just heard you have a couple of them, you have me one-upped. <laughs> <laughs> Surfing. And you know, like what's fascinating about your journey is you've actually spent a lot, long time at, at, uh, at your company and really made an impact. And that, this is one of my personal mantras is that if you want to make an impact, you have to stay for a while at, at, the, at the company. And it's amazing to see that Akamai actually uh, rewarded you for that tenure and the impact that you've made because sometimes you have to leave the company and come back in to become a VP, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think you're right about tenure and impact because I, I, if you, you think about when you join a new company, how long it takes to really understand how things work there and really build a network and... I think you can make cosmetic changes um, early on, but I think to to make changes or have an impact that like really are in step or in sync with the way that the company operates, I think takes a long period of time. And I think the the more you know the company, the more you know the people, I think the better an impact you can have because you have that that context. And I think you, you gain the trust of people so that you can make bolder and bolder decisions, you know, in that framework of trust. You know, I never, ever in a million years expected to spend this long in a company. I don't think anybody ever really does. But I think I value being somewhere for a really long period of time because you really do build that understanding, that network, that trust. And I think that allows you to then, you know, operate in a way that's not quite so constrained. Do you ever find yourself in meetings where you're like, uh-huh, saw this mistake made in five years ago? 
saw that mistake made 17 years ago. Oh my God. It almost exactly like it happens on a regular basis, right? Because new people come in, departments reform, and people are like, okay, we're going to try to solve this long running problem that we've had as a company. And here's how we're going to do it. And I'm like, ooh, yeah, we tried that in 2005. We tried it in 2010. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you think it's going to work now? So, you know, I try obviously not to be the naysayer, but it does help to have a little context. <laughs> I mean, you know, in the first few times that happened, probably you're like, oh, I got to warn this person, right? (laughs) And then, you know, somebody actually told me that there's a saying that Napoleon said that it is rude to stop somebody while they're making a mistake. So after I heard that saying, I actually stopped just like volunteering and volunteering people like about what's happening. I just started sitting back and just watching some of the theatrics take place. Well, I think that's wise counsel, but I think it depends on the the scope or the risk, right? Is the only way that we learn is through failure, right? You don't learn through winning. You only learn through failure and mistakes. And so people do need to make mistakes and individuals and departments and companies need to make mistakes to learn. So you're absolutely right about that. But I think sometimes if the risk level is high or the cost level is high, it does make sense to try to save people from their own failures. 100%. 100%. Team players or teammates don't let other teammates hang themselves, yeah. <laughs> is what I would say to that. Yeah. Okay, let's dive into the topic, operations. And I am a big fan of people that are operationally savvy because I believe the next generation of leaders will absolutely need to be holistically operational people because there's so much effort that's been put into people being inspirational and strategic, which really just means financial. And so tell us a little bit about your operations functions framework. Well, first of all, I think you're right about that. I mean, I I think the world takes all kinds, right? You have to have the strategic and inspirational people on the team, but you also have to have the realists, i.e. the operations people that will figure out how to actually get it done. I think you have to balance, you know, both of those kind of skill sets. You know, I wouldn't say that I have a really defined framework having, you know, kind of fallen into operations organically, but I do have, you know, a few, I think, tips and ways of thinking about things that I could share. I think one, I think it's super important for the operations support system to be experts in the business function they support. Um, I think it, it, I've seen a number of failures where the operations team are only experts in process or technology or data without really having a deep understanding of the function that they support. And that I think will always be a failure. So I think I always seek in my team for myself and every level of my staff to become experts in the function. So today I'm in a marketing operations role, you know, previously was in service and support operations. You want to hire people in the team that has either been a practitioner and done the job that they're supporting or that can embed kind of deeply with that function to really understand it even better that the, than the leaders of the function understand it. So, you know, a, a VP or a, in this case, like a CMO probably doesn't have a lot of visibility to what someone five or six levels below in their organization do on a day-to-day basis, but the operations team should. So they should actually know the role better in some ways than the senior leaders do. They should know their hopes and their fears and their dreams and their struggles and the, what's hard for them to do and what's easy for them to do. I think that's like step number one in the operations framework is the ops team has to become experts in the business. And then of course they have to be experts in the company context as well, because they need to know how to get things done you know, with these external functions with like IT and HR and legal and finance, they need to know 
how to navigate those organizations and how to be successful with them. So it's, they got to be experts in the function they're in. They have to be experts in how to operate in the company. Then I would say the next thing is like, understand the goals and the strategy of the function. You know, what are we trying to do in in terms of a sort of long-term, medium-term, short-term then you kind of take that strategy and you work backwards from it, you know, okay, if this is our goal, what do we need to be able to measure to get to that goal? And then you work backwards from the measurement, what people roles, you know, org structure do we need to be able to measure that? What process do we need to be able to get measure that? What technology do we need to be able to track it? Um, And then you get to the data, which helps you um, measure your success against the strategy and goal. So I kind of think of operations as those, those groupings as, you know, there's sort of a process people roles grouping, there's a technology grouping and there's a a data analytics grouping. And and that's how I've always organized my operations team is along those, those three functions. uh, If that makes sense. And, and did you, again, did you get that through education or through exposure or maybe just learnings over the last uh, couple of decades that you've been at, at Akamai? I'm curious because it sounds thought out, right? And, and uh, but, but there's always like some people that are just like, oh, I saw a chart. I'm just going to try to do this chart type of thing. No, I don't think. I mean, I think it's just trial and error. I, as I said, I didn't. I didn't chase down a career in operations. It kind of fell into my lap. And I think I did a lot of things wrong and I saw a lot of things done, you know, unsuccessfully. And then obviously you have successes and then that becomes part of your, your way of operating. So I I think it's an interesting topic because there is no like operations school or degree or, you know, kind of formalized approach that's like industry standard in the same way that there is for, product development or engineering or, you know, even marketing, those are things you can get to reason. And there isn't really like a, you know, certification for being like a generalized ops role. So yeah, I think it is kind of just trial and error and two decades of getting things wrong and then figuring it out. And any major lessons or fun stories that you could share with us? (laughs) I'm sure there's many. You're probably like, Hey, Asher, if we just had a beer, we could talk about this all day long, right? But but a, but a couple of key ones that I think were pivotal that really transformed your thinking. Yeah, I think a couple of things. I, I don't know that there's fun stories associated with, the, with these, but one would be to, within a large company where there's like different operations teams, I think it's really important for the operations teams to, you know, have linkage to each other. So you might have like a sales ops team, a marketing ops team, a product ops team, a you know, services ops team, et cetera. I think it's really important for those teams to stay in tight with each other in communication because there's probably learnings and best practices and common core, you know, tools and things like that that can be shared across the teams. And I have seen, it's very easy for them to become siloed from each other because they generally sit in the absence of like a COO org, they generally sit embedded in the functions that they're in. So they can get blind to what the other operations teams are doing. So I think that's one that like I learned the hard way. I think a bunch of times is like, for example, in orgs where sales and marketing are in separate orgs and the sales and marketing ops teams are separate, it can be really dangerous if they're not talking a lot, sharing the same language, sharing the same metrics, you know, because there's nothing worse than like your head of sales and your head of marketing going into a CEO staff meeting and presenting like two different versions of the same metric that are defined different ways or something. So you really want to, I think, link up the ops teams together in some, you know, kind of regular form of communication. I think it's also kind of important to give operations some form of 
power or a resource that people need access to, because I think you want to incent the business to work seamlessly with them and not see operations as a blocker or a, you know, a tax on their work. Because oftentimes ops are coming to people and saying like, you need to track this additional information and I need you to go put this information in the system. And, you know, if you're, if you're a sales cowboy, you know, you don't want to track a bunch of information. And so there is this kind of dynamic where it's like ops is always slowing me down telling me to track extra stuff and telling me to use this tool or process when I don't want to. And so I think you do need to um, grease the wheels of that conflict a little bit with some kind of form of a carrot and a stick. And so the ops team should have some control over budget or headcount allocation or, you know, tool access or funding or something that kind of like forces it to be a more harmonious relationship with the function. And then I think at the same time, I would also view operations within a function as like a bridge between functional silos. So I, you know, you may have within a marketing org or a sales org or services org, you may have five or 10 different functions or teams. And it turns out that a lot of the time they don't talk to each other and operations can be the one team that actually talks to all of them and can help bring them all to the table to talk to each other, to operate, you know, more harmoniously together. So I think it can also be like a bridging or connector role too. Yeah. The resourcing, I'm glad you pointed that out because I've so many times I've seen that there is a want or a desire to be opportunity savvy. But then when you look at the headcount model of these teams and, and you see that there's one person supporting 45 people, it just never works, right? And everybody starts using the word, well, it should scale out and this should happen and that should happen. That one poor person is is just doing list management of all the tasks that they've been given on a weekly or even a daily basis yeah. and uh, and just never able to come up for air to do anything. Let's call it quote unquote strategic, which really means like so that I can make life easier for my audience. Yeah, I'm a big fan of defining headcount ratios like in all functions. Um, so, you know, the obvious one that I think a lot of people in this space know is like a, a sales rep to sales engineer ratio. So you might have you know, a, a two to one ratio or a three to one ratio of a rep to an SE. And that allows you to plan or growth. So every time you add three sales heads, you have to add one SE that just becomes like how the function works together. And you can do the same thing for operations. So what's the ratio of the ops team to the rest of the organization and and and, and every other function in between? That way you're not constantly kind of begging for headcount, like in a onesie twosie manner of like, okay, everybody's busy. Now we need another one. You, you can kind of plan that that's how the org scales together. And so I, I like to look across functions and look at all the different roles, how they orchestrate together, and then come up with some kind of ratios from one role to another. So you can plan um, the growth across multiple functions together. You don't have a propensity to sell algorithm running, do you? Which, uh, which basically would have all these factors in it. <laughs> yeah. If you do, we need to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how we we look. We spend so much time talking about propensity to buy, but uh, don't really look at the propensity to sell. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, this is the reason why I joined this data company because so much we put so much effort on get the right account to the right lead to the right like person to the like let's get them into the system, and then and then we don't put enough effort on. Well, who are they going to talk to? Does that person have something in common with the other person, right? And and focus on conversion. Yeah. But but yeah. I was curious. I mean, you get all these like frameworks and models and data and stuff like that. But ultimately, like selling and marketing is a person to person. Hundred percent. Yes. 
Yeah. I figured if you if you just told me you said that you have a propensity to sell model, I would I would have stopped this podcast and started talking about that for a while. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably be rich. So let's talk about marketing ROI for a second, because so much of your work is in the marketing operations world, and I know you have customer experience as well. We'll talk about that for a second, but let's talk about marketing ROI. So what like. Uh, are you doing attribution models or or give us a little bit of insight into that? Yeah, so we've been um, I've been in this marketing ops role for about three years and we have been on the multi-touch journey, um, which I think a lot of companies are, are going through today. When I joined the team, we had a pure last touch model. So that means that the whatever the last thing that a person interacted with before they signed a deal kind of gets credit for the whole deal. So, you know, if they're going to trade shows and downloading white papers and going on our website and going on webinars, and then the last thing they do is, you know, open a PDF, then the PDF gets the credit for the deal, which is absolutely ridiculous because, you know, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the decision they made. As, as we all know, it's the series of events that happen that collectively together cause the deal get signed. And, and, I often find people in sales that don't understand this. And the way that I explain it to them is like, you know, when you sign an enterprise deal, you had to make like 89 phone calls and 15 in-person meetings and a presentation and a QBR. Like no one of those things caused the deal to get signed. It's all of them orchestrating together. So yeah, we've been, we've been chasing that multi-touch nirvana at Akamai. And we think about ROI, you know, kind of in two buckets, like one we're trying to get marketing a bigger share of the budget or, you know, an appropriate share of the company budget. And so how do we use marketing ROI to show what that budget should be? And then once you get the budget, how do you slice and dice it amongst all the different ways that you can spend it amongst different tactics? And I think, you know, this multi-touch data can help us answer both questions. So first, the bigger picture, like how do we prove marketing ROI overall and get a bigger share of the company budget? We need to look not just at that last touch, but we need to look at the influence that marketing has on every deal, even the deals that sales is sourcing. So a last touch model only tells us about, you know, potentially deals that marketing sourcing. But if we look at deals that sales sourced, we can show that even though the sales um, team is driving the interaction, that the customer may be interacting with the website or marketing content throughout the sales cycle. And that has an influence. So we use, you know, big data to kind of estimate what that influence is and be able to say that we're responsible for kind of a percentage of the deal value. And then once you get that, you know, bigger share of the budget, you can use this multi-touch data to determine the relative impact of each touch. So what is more impactful on closing a deal and at what stage? So, you know, how much did a, did the content on the website contribute to a deal? How much did you know, a webinar or an in-person event contribute to the deal. I think you can, you know, if you, once you have all this data, you can throw it into a big, big data machine. Um, and you can then start to look at like what tactics are most successful in accelerating deals, what tactics are most successful in closing larger deals, when they make the most sense to use at what stage in the life cycle, et cetera. And then once you have that information, you can like spend your budget in a smarter way. You can spend it on the higher ROI tactics and you can know at what phase of a deal life cycle, you know, that, that you should bring them to bear. So it's really exciting. We've been working on this for a couple of years. We're finally starting to get all that data, be able to share it with our marketers and our leaders and, and people are just eating it up. I mean, I think it's, it, they've been hungry for it for so long that it's, it's going to really change how we make all of our decisions. I've been on a journey 
in previous companies around attribution. And at least what I found that if you try to explain multi-touch attribution to sales, they're just never going to get it, right? So what, what we did uh, start to do is just look at, hey, here's the contribution that marketing has brought to the company revenues, right? And then how we divvy up those, the budget that gets assigned based on all of the work that we've done is, is something that we supported supported with, uh, with a multi-touch attribution model because we wanted to optimize the channels that were really inviting people to engage with us. So it's interesting that you're actually taking the application a little bit further and saying, no, 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 we are going to show you the influence that we've had. And then if you want to continue take our help, we're going to need you to free up some budget. Yeah. I mean, something that something that our data science team did that was really smart was like very on in our multi-touch journey. They created a visual, a report in a dashboard that allows anyone involved in the account. So, you know, the account owner, sales rep, et cetera, to come in and look at an opportunity, a specific opportunity that's plotted over time. So it's like a, a graph over time and it shows the touches the marketing touches. And then you can actually, you know, drill in or zoom in and see like, okay, this account was searching these terms and they landed on this page on the website. They downloaded this white paper. They attended this event. They opened this email. You can see it plotted. And then I think if you can overlay that plot with the sales activity that happens over the course of the, of the opportunity as well. So calls and meetings and, you know, things like that, then you see all those touch points together on one chart. And I think that visual can really be compelling to help drive a shared understanding with the sales rep that it's not about sales closing the deal or marketing closing the deal, but it's like the whole, you know, whole like stronger together thing that requires both functions to be doing lots of things to create the recipe for a deal. Yeah. I think you guys did that because once you get the visual out there, it takes a little bit of time for people to get the visual and digest it and then start using it. And it's and they're fighting denial the entire time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? And then and then when they finally get it, they're like, okay, I need more help here. <laughs> that is such a more powerful way to say it than just say I need help. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. That's right. Great. Okay. So if somebody wanted to I know you took on uh, operations because you were asked to do that, but if you look at it, uh, the your journey, if somebody did and was interested in taking operations on, what advice would you give to them? And what would be the first couple of steps that they should take? Yeah, this is an interesting one because like we talked about before, it's not like there's a, a an operations, um, I think, academic track. Yep. And I kind of, this is going to sound unhelpful, I think, but I kind of think like you're sort of an ops person or you're not. Like it's one of those kind of personality traits that I don't know how much it can be learned in, you know, just like we were talking about before is like, you kind of can be a a strategic long range thinker, or you can be a tactical execution person. And, you know, you might be able to pigeon your hole in one or the other, but I think you, you kind of gravitate to one or the other, just like it would be hard to make a sales rep out of somebody who wasn't comfortable, you know, in that kind of, with that kind of communication. So I think first of all, it's like figuring out if you're that kind of person and, I guess the the attributes I would look for would be, you know, if, if you're a practitioner of a function, so you're in sales or marketing or services or whatever, and you f- 
see problems with the with how to do your job and you come with a solution versus a problem. So people who are more likely to say like, okay, this isn't very efficient. This is frustrating to use, but here's how I recommend to fix it. Like the people that are coming with the solutions tend to be like an operations mindset and people who want like to understand how things work under the covers and like to tinker with them. That That's typically kind of an operations mindset and generally pretty organized in their thinking. So like if those attributes apply, there's a good chance that, you know, the person is sort of like naturally operational. And then I think in terms of how they would go forward with that, I think one, like we talked about before, like you got to be an expert in the function. So embed in the function, observe people or interview them to really understand deeply how the function operates today. Then go understand the priorities top down and bottoms up. Like what does the leadership want to achieve? And then what do the individual contributors, you know, find that they want to change about their roles? And then I think another one is to learn the technology space for the function. So today there's this exploding set of technology around marketing and sales and services support you know, tech stack. And I think it's really important to know the tech stack for your function kind of inside and out. And that is easy to research just, you know, just by Googling or, you know, listening to podcasts or following people on Twitter or whatever. So I think it's, it's important to know that. And then I think I would look to peer organizations for like best practices on reporting or metrics, which is kind of the, you know, goes hand in hand with the technology. And, and then I guess, lastly, there are some outside in, sources um, of information that are helpful to, you know, sign up for, depending on the function, you know, in the, in the sales and marketing world, it, it would have been like a serious decisions, you know, now part of Forrester in the services and support world, there's TSIA and there's a handful of organizations like that where it's like their entire existence is built around publishing best practices for um, running those functions. And usually like the vast majority of what they cover is pretty much operations in nature to hopefully something helpful was in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, the biggest takeaway there, at least for me, is if you aren't naturally gravitating towards solving the problem and tinkering with the solution, don't take it on. Think of the other ways that you could make an impact. And, and I've been through these uh, like fast-growing companies where all of a sudden, like when you're going from one level to the next level, a whole bunch of operational work gets into play, right? Comes into play. Yeah. And uh, and then what happens is just because all of those ops people are doing a lot of work, the people that are non-ops start to feel like they don't have an impact in that ops and helping grow that company, right? Yeah. And so 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 I, I asked, and it's at that point in time where a lot of people say, well, maybe I should go do ops. And, uh, and it's a dangerous spot, right? Mm -hmm. But your counsel is good. If you don't naturally feel the need to, to solve this, this problem all the way down to the nitty gritty, don't take it on. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to tell, you know squash anyone's dreams, but I do think it's very similar to the dynamic of like, you don't always promote your best practitioner into a manager role because just being good at something doesn't mean you'd be good at managing it, right? It's a very similar dynamic to that. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you'd be good at, you know, sort of supporting it or, or operationalizing it. I think the world is full of people who are excellent practitioners and then, you know, either on the management track or on the sort of operations track that, are, that want to like organize the work around doing the function. It is a really different skill set. Well, Jenny, from 
knowing people that have good things to say about you, right? A couple of those folks basically said that you have an extremely hard work ethic. You get stuff done, and I'm being very politically correct, <laughs> and you always push the envelope. So I would say you, my friend, definitely are an ops person. <laughs> I'm proud to say the, that I'm an operations wonk. Um, I don't know who you asked about it, but I, I, uh, I'm very flattered by that feedback. But yeah, I think it, it wasn't something that I even knew existed you know, when I started my career, but now it feels like home. Superb. All right, let's move to a little bit of the fun part of the podcast. Who would be two other people that you would recommend that we bring on the podcast who are as passionate about as you are about go-to-market or data science or ops? Mm. Well, I wouldn't be a very good marketing operations person if I didn't suggest Scott Brinker, but I think you've already had the chief MarTech on your, on your blog, correct? So that would be like the obvious, you know, giveaway choice. I was thinking about this question since you told me you were going to ask it. And I, I was thinking about, you know, somebody within the company that I work with and then somebody outside and, and uh, within Akamai, um, one of my peers that runs um, one of the large sales operations organizations is a guy by the name of Ross Feinberg. He's a VP of operations supporting our uh, sales operations, supporting our media division. And I am always impressed by how he goes about his job in a different way than I do. I'm not very, I'm not a huge numbers person. I know it's a little bit weird to say in an ops role, but he's so numbers savvy that I learn a lot from him in terms of, you know, managing budgets, finances, models, you know, how to plan things always from a numbers perspective. Um, whereas I think I am more of like a intuition people process angle on things. And also he happens to run our internal podcast at Akamai. So I think you guys could have a good conversation oh, on, nerd out on, nerd out on podcasting uh, stuff. Oh yeah. Um, and then one of the external people I look to um, is named Ryan Danner. He runs um, marketing operations at Red Hat. And um, he and I crossed paths uh, years ago at a serious decisions conference. And um, I actually tried to hire him at one point and it didn't work out, but we've stayed in touch since then. And always have a good time sharing best practices about what our teams are, are working on. And Red Hat is a really cool company that does things in a really innovative way. So I always learn something from those conversations. Superb. So if you could condense this podcast into a hashtag, what would your hashtag be? <laughs> this is a hard one for me. I, I, um, I was thinking about the fact that like the operations function has the ability to define how things are going to get done. And I don't know if you've ever heard the, the phrase, the definer wins. Um, that's a piece of advice that was given to me early on in my career. That is one of the ones that anytime someone asked me for like, what are, what's your like business motto? That's the one that always come to mind for me. The definer wins to me means like when a bunch of people come to the table and they can't figure out a problem and they have different opposing views of the problem, typically the person who comes with a proposed solution or a framework for a solution actually gets the most influence on the solution. So I think that's key to operations is the definer wins. I think you with because you're helping to define the solution for how an organization should operate, then you get to have a lot of influence on um, that, you know, the outcomes. And so I think that's a fun, really fun place to be. That's fantastic. That's probably the smartest, I would say, hashtag that somebody's chosen on the, at least on the podcast that I've done. And, uh, and it's, it's so telling because as you were saying this, I can look back into my own career where early on, I didn't care about the solutions, but I didn't really care about like how you got to it. And then, and then I started taking a deeper interest in it. 
and then I found myself actually bringing people together on a single language and uh, and defining the terms and et cetera, et cetera. And the next thing you know, you're it because then they're just people keep ask, come asking you because you've defined the solution. That's right. So yeah. That, Spot it, on. that in my book, that's the best uh, hashtag that somebody's come up with. Oh, well, I'm 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 honored to hear that. I I guess I figured you know it probably should have been something funny, but um, I was something funny on the spot. So yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, real. <laughs> So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of folks that after they listen to this podcast would want to connect with you, especially because like your tenure and the impact that you've made is is so unique. So what would be the best way for folks to connect with you? I, I think, um, you know, probably LinkedIn. I think I'm I'm not the best at keeping up with my LinkedIn messages, but that's, you know, keep my uh, business-based social networking there. I, you know, have a, a Twitter account, but I mostly do like political ranting and raving there. So it's probably not everyone's cup of tea. So I think, you know, I would welcome um, people reaching out over LinkedIn if they wanted to talk more about these topics. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing us your journey and best of luck in your future endeavors. Great. Thanks, Asher, for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers.